thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. This week, another instalment in our Titans of Science series. I sit down with pioneer of IVF, Lord Robert Winston. We're back with Titans of Science, long-form, in-depth interviews profiling the people behind some of the most exciting developments in science. And this week's guest is the scientist, broadcaster and member of the House of Lords, Robert Winston. Robert Winston was born in London on the 15th of July 1940. He's a British professor, medical doctor, scientist, television presenter and a Labour peer. He's also been heavily involved in IVF research and pioneered new techniques in screening human embryos. He joined Hammersmith Hospital as a registrar in 1970 and as a Welcome Research Fellow. He became an Associate Professor at the Catholic University in Leuven, Germany in 1975 and was Scientific Advisor to the WHO's Programme in Human Reproduction from 1975 to 1977. He's written hundreds of books and articles and presented several BBC television series, including Superhuman, The Secret Life of Twins and the award-winning The Human Body. He's also a lifelong supporter of Arsenal Football Club, I'm pleased to say, and a passionate musician. He's also briefly embarked on a career in the theatre before he decided he was going to work on fertility. Let's go right back to the beginning. We'll learn more about that a bit later on. Let's hear about the, the very young Robert Winston. What were the early years like for you? Well, it was a pretty happy childhood, I suppose, marred by the death of my father when I was eight. My mother and father were very involved with each other emotionally, and they were both fairly political, but not party political. They didn't believe in party politics. And this interest in theatre? Well, yes. My aunt was a theatre director, and she took me to my first theatre at the Lyric about the age of six. And my grandmother on that side, my father's side, was an opera singer, and I think theatre was in the blood, actually. And in fact, quite a lot of my family, looking back, really are ridiculous. They tell bad stories, which aren't true, really, but they're very theatrical. <laughs> so at what, what point were you disabused of the notion that the theatre was the direction to go and, and you went down the medical line? Were you pushed into that or did you think, no, that's my calling? Well, I left school without any clear idea what I wanted to do. I had a place to do natural sciences and... I suddenly thought, I don't want to look down a microscope for the rest of my life. Also, I had a, unusually a, a gap year, because that wasn't very common. You know, normally went straight from school to, to university. So I had, a, I had a gap year, and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I rather idly wrote round at the end of the summer term to three different medical schools and got a couple of interviews. And I was interviewed at the first one, and they said, why aren't you wanting to go to Cambridge? And I said, well, I just think it would be quite interesting to do medicine here. So I ended up doing medicine. And I had no clear idea about, about it. And actually, if I'm honest, and this is something it's not easy to admit, but it just seemed quite glamorous to be a medical student. I wondered if it was the operating theatre 
that was the attraction well, that, that pulled you into it. Because you went to the London Hospital Medical College, which is actually where I went to medical yeah. school when it still existed. It, it merged with St Bartholomew's and then into Queen Mary, what's now Queen Mary University of London. But what, what happened through medical school then? Did you, did you then get drawn towards fertility? Because that's what you're most known for. Um, no, you're best known for your role in human fertility and infertility. No, no, it was nothing like that, really. I mean, basically, of course, you're right about theatre and medicine, because, of course, obviously, that's what surgeons did, and that's what, you know, that's what, basically, when um, people went to see Fabricius operating in, in Padua, you know, it was a theatre, um, and it was real theatre. You were never more than 100 metres away from the body that they were dissecting. It took a whole term to dissect one body. The smell must have been awful. No, I mean, I think... I knew I was interested in women's health. That was quite a big thing. And well, I th- while at medical school, even then? I was, but I, I did look at other things, and I wondered about psychiatry, I wondered about orthopaedics, I was interested in a whole range of different things, and, well, clear. and then when I got into doing clinical medicine, I suddenly realised there was a real need to look at women's health much more intensively. I felt that actually women hadn't really getting a very good deal, and it was very, very clear that there was a huge amount of research going on in, in reproduction which was worth doing, and also generally pregnancy. And, you know, if you're not brilliant, it's quite sensible to go to an area where there isn't much competition. And actually, at that time, reproduction was wide open. And you judge yourself to be not brilliant? Seemed very self-effacing. No, I mean, I think I'm quite ordinary. And I think actually, I think really, um, I think I was very lucky. Also, I had some wonderful teachers. I mean, at school, there was a man called Sid Pask. I did my first in vitro fertilisation when I was 16 with a sea urchin's eggs. And basically Sid Pask took a group of us up to Scotland in a marine biology station and he gave us experiments to do which had been published in the literature. Lord Rothschild was one of the people he suggested I should try and look at. So we looked at what he was looking at, which was the block to polyspermy in eggs and Rothschild chose to look at what was happening to the, the that moment when fertilization occurs, there's penetration of the egg, and immediately there's this membrane which forms around the egg which prevents other sperm getting in. And it was very simple to reproduce that under the microscope because it's just seawater. It's not, you know... But I never for a moment thought I'd be doing this in humans 20 years later. It must have planted a seed, though. It sounds like it did. Well, yes, I suppose I started to try and fertilise eggs, collect them and fertilise them in about... 76, which was about two years before the first IVF baby. Because that, that's when Bob Edwards and Patrick Steptoe yes. were beginning to do, or, or had been pursuing well, for a number Bob of years, actually, the whole IVF idea, Bob isn't it? Because Louise well. Brown came along in 1978 that's as the first Bob IVF baby. Because his papers go back to the 60s. And I think uh, it's very interesting to look back at, you know, there have been so many interesting things said about the beginnings of IVF, and sometimes I think there's a lot of mythology about really what happened. Did you meet them? Did yes, you spend time with them? Yes, I did. I did spend some time with them, but I'm afraid we didn't really get on very well. Why not? I think Patrick felt sidelined because he very much wanted to be in a London teaching hospital, which I was, of course. This is at the Hammersmith Hospital by then? The Royal Postgraduate Medical School, which was, you know, really a, a wonderful place to be at. And Patrick was out at Oldham. And, you know, I think he resented the fact he'd been, you know, he perhaps, I think, I don't know, I, that we didn't get on. This isn't the criticism of, of, of them. It's just, I think that, you know, he'd worked really hard for a very long time and he'd been under huge scrutiny and massive, massive criticism for what he was doing as being, inverted commas, unethical. Daily Mail ran a headline when Louise Brown was born 
saying this was the devil's work. Yeah. This is the national press. Yeah. Then would, front page news would be the devil's work of of making life in a in a dish. So I suppose that was it. Just they wanted to get there first before they shared this. Was this was this just scientific protectionism? And then they were happy to let people have this, or was there something else going I can't on? Really comment on their motives, but they didn't publish the details of what they'd done very quickly. If you look at the publication record, you can see there was a long delay, and certainly. They were invited to Australia to look at the other big group doing this with Alan Trumson, who was, to me, was a, a hero. Alan, I think, is one of the really great people in, in reproduction generally because Alan shared everything. And I mean, there's one occasion when I went to Melbourne specifically because he'd left IVF and come back to it because the Melbourne unit wasn't working very well and it, the, the pregnancy rate had slumped and he'd obviously changed the lab. And I went down there got dressed and went into the sterile environment which filtered there, which he had, and there he was in the centre of the embryology laboratory on his own. Didn't see him at first because he just had a hat and mask and everything on, gown and overshoes, completely swathed. And he was looking down a microscope with his back to me and I walked in. And as I walked towards him, I could see this plume of smoke coming up from the Petri dish. And it was only when I got really close to him I could see that actually he had a mask on and there was a cigarette out of the corner of the mask. <laughs> And Alan, uh, Alan said to me, he said, you know what, I think the ash is quite good for them. I was going to say, what was the conception rate? Maybe, maybe nicotine is a good stimulus for conception. I don't know. I mean, but Alan, Alan was, Alan is, he's still alive. Alan's a genius. I met Louise Brown when she was 40. She came back to Bourne Hall, yeah. which was the clinic that Patrick, uh, Ed, uh, Patrick Steptoe and Bob Edwards founded and set up. They operated from there, didn't they, in, in yes. Cambridge? And it's, it's still a pioneering IVF clinic. She said there's always a lot of demand for her time when it's a zero or a five in, in her age. But she came back because she was 40 that year. One of the things she memorably said to me was, there are now millions of us, meaning millions of babies born by IVF. Has it surprised you how far or fast this has gone or did you expect really that sort of trajectory because of the reason you outlined which no, is women I, had had a raw I, deal I, I in never, medicine i never thought it was going to be very valuable i didn't i didn't see ivf as being a big area in public medicine why are they not i thought it was going to be too complicated and i was quite a luddite i, I was doing it early but i thought it was going to be always quite that specialized you know you have to have a good laboratory you had a whole lot of stuff that you weren't going to get through the nhs but actually I had it much easier than he did up in Oldham um, because I had a hospital that was a research hospital that actually was prepared to take risks, didn't care what it really cost, providing we could help get some help and so on. And we found it very easy to pave our way. Um, but I didn't really think it was going to be that. So when, in fact, we got to about 7 million babies, I was very surprised. Were you concerned when IVF first came along about what the consequences might be long-term. Many people, like the Daily Mail, printing the headline about the devil's work and so on. Were, I think it was James Watson who said that and was quoted by the Daily Mail, actually. But were you worried about what the genetic consequences could be of, of doing this sort of playing God in a dish? Well, Jim Watson was always prepared to say things around. He still does. He still does, very much and, so. You know, and, uh, you know, you can't take him very seriously. No, I think... I think we were concerned. I think I'm much more concerned now than I was then because I think now we have a lot of evidence to suggest there might be epigenetic effects if you what, don't. of IVF. Yes, because of the way you what you have in the culture media, which is still a bit of a black box. You know that five days in culture media is still the biggest failure rate, and so there needs to be much more research. And actually, that's what I'm doing at the moment. So I've got a, a small team at Imperial where we're looking at 
culture media were doing very detailed analysis of what we're seeing. And we're finding some very interesting molecules which are being produced by the embryo, which are not in the original solution. So it's sort of a rather exciting area. So did we go down this road of waving through IVF because we saw there was a need, we saw there was a big demand, many people probably were motivated financially to, to do this, but that because we were blithely ignorant of the role of this epigenetic component where there is an additional layer of control over how genes work that we just didn't have any idea of at the time is that why we were just prepared to let it go and, and we're, we may be we may be cruising for a biological bruising later i think it's much more to that i think one of the problems has been is that actually once you start to set up a clinic and do ivf it's very easy to do you don't need to think about what you're doing you've got set you know, it's regulated. There are certain things you can do and you can't do and so on. And it's a process which you go through. But it's not so much the, pr- the practitioners that I'm, I'm getting at the science and, well, the, and the concern there. about the biology. Basically, people who go to an IVF clinic, infertility is seen as a diagnosis. It's like having pain in the chest and asking for, let's say, some form of heart surgery. It's a complete nonsense. Of course, we should be making a diagnosis. And what we're doing is treating people with the least successful treatment in the whole fertility spectrum so nowadays the NHS is doing a pretty poor job at treating people with anovulatory infertility, with male infertility, with, a whole, with, with actually tubal infertility. The main causes of infertility are not being properly treated. People are just diverted into IVF, which internationally, across, and you can see what the world results are, you know, run at about 21, 22, 23% per cycle at a huge expense with a failure of investment in proper medicine. And actually, ultimately, a key to bad medicine is not to make a diagnosis, but just to treat the symptoms. And that's actually what we're doing. We're treating the symptoms of infertility rather than trying to understand it. But once you've created a life, these millions, you you use the figure 7 million IVF people have been conceived, is there a risk that, because we didn't know at the time, that there are additional genetic factors at play, that these people may have skeletons in their genetic closet that we haven't discovered yet? We can't say that for sure, but what we can say is that we know increasingly that when an embryo is in an environment which is not particularly favourable or too favourable, you end up with certain changes which result in their not being able to accommodate a different environment when they are adult. So, for example, that classic work that was done years ago in Sweden where they looked at um, a birth consort uh, from the 1800s and 1790s showing that if you you were subjected to a good harvest at the age of nine as a boy, your male grandchildren were more likely to have heart disease and so on because actually almost certainly have epigenetic effects. And we know increasingly that epigenetic effects are almost certainly transferable. And that's now increasingly obvious with very recent research and probably not just through one generation. So I think we have to be aware that a lot of the diseases that we're most worried about, some of which will be psychological and and psychogenic diseases, are possibly related to epigenetics. And that's a fascinating area. But of course, it may be much more than that as well. Maybe vascular disease and a whole range of other diseases. I don't think we're going to get lots of people with cancer. I mean, I think there's no reason. But, you know, you might want to ask yourself, what is the effect of changing uh, metabolic issues in culture? What would be the risk of, you know, sugar sugar metabolism, for example, and so on? So I, I think there are some real questions to ask. 
And I think at the very least, we should be documenting what we're culturing embryos in much more carefully and actually doing proper research to see, you know, what to optimise what we're doing because we're not doing that properly. So talking to you now, I would say, look, if you're listening to this, um, you know, as a, as a young person thinking about research, think about what opportunities there really are in, in human reproduction at the moment, which are wide open for somebody to really just have another look at. There's some ethical difficulties about doing some of those that research, but much of it doesn't require huge difficulty, and some of it can be mimicked in some animal work as well, which we always regretfully rather ignore. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and we're chatting this week with a titan of human fertility, and that's Lord Robert Winston. Let's talk about your broadcasting career for a minute, because that sprung up alongside doing all this amazing fertility work as well. I know what my story is. It was right place, right time, opportunity meets potential was that true for you what what happened how did you end up on the big screen it was first of all i was working at the rpms that was at hammersmith which was run by a man who i think was massively misunderstood professor john mcclure brown who was very very supportive of me he was a very good reproductive clinician and he used to have visitors from all over the world, and he would always tell the visitors, I don't want you coming here, you should go and see the, the lab down there, see what Robert Winston's doing. And he was amazingly supportive. And, you know, I didn't really justify that. But the fact of the matter is, I worked in an environment which really was very, it was unproscriptive, and what you did in your spare time was, you know, if it was interesting and it was, might support other things. And so getting involved with television, which I did initially in '74, I did a programme with John Mansfield, called Predictions, which looked at what the health service might look like in 25 years' time in the year 2000. Were you right? No, completely. <laughs> Do you know what? The programme won, won the Prix Futura Award in Berlin. It's a big prize, and the, celebrated by the BBC. It was complete rubbish. <laughs> and I presented much of it. And looking back at it, that's too embarrassing to watch. You know, it was not great stuff. But did they come to you, well, or did, did you, yes, no, did you John, actively yes, sort John, of John, solicit that? John was one of the... He was head of... He was running Horizon at the time, in the early days of Horizon, or he was certainly running Science. I think he was running Horizon already, or certainly he was involved with it. And John was one of these people who would constantly be reading the medical journals, and he'd read something I'd published, and he thought, let's go and have a chat, and... He came and he, he walked into the laboratory and he said, uh, you know, of course, the great thing about you is, you know, busy people always got time to, you know, see, see other... But of course, I was sitting there idly doing nothing at all, working with some rabbit or something, you know, not really with my mind off, off it, really. Now, John was great. He was a very interesting director and he did two things for me. He'd stand me in front of a camera. We came to do Your Life in Their Hands and I was presenting it and he'd say, stop. Robert, you sound pompous. Or, Robert, I don't understand a word of what you said. And he kept on battering me until I suddenly thought, you know, and I listened to what he... He was great because he he was quite brutal. So I started to think about, you know, trying to work out how you have quite complicated things to explain. And that, I think, really did stand me a good stead. And although I wasn't great at your life in their hands, it did encourage the BBC to consider to re-employ me in due course. But by that time, I was really trying to develop my career. So I didn't do much research until 
the only thing I was really doing apart was trying to defend reproductive medicine in the media because we were concerned about what you were talking about earlier about the terrible comments being made about IVF. But then I got much later on to the human body, I suppose, was was a, for me quite a big breakthrough because that, that did sort of, by that time, you know, I'd, I felt I probably did have something which was worth saying about, you know, something quite simple and yet very complicated, the body. You know. And actually I was very lucky there because I had another director who was like John Mansfield, utterly brilliant, Richard Dale. And there I was very lucky because the BBC had a big budget then and they assembled the most amazingly talented production team. And, of course, I owe so much to that, really. More recently, you've, you've made politics much more a prominent part of your life. You joined the House of Lords 20 years ago, about then, wasn't it? And what, what, what sort of difference has that made? How have you got involved there? Well, it's been really interesting because, of course, I've come in at a time when Tony Blair decided... Well, it was before Tony. I came in at, when John Major was Prime Minister. But um, Tony Blair came in with his idea of reforming the House of Lords, and there was a lot of talk about that. But the House of Lords reform bill, as it went through, was very different by the time it had gone through... And it became increasingly obvious that reform of the House of Lords was going to be much more complicated than anybody had expected. I was making speeches which I was quite proud of. I was ridiculous, really, saying, looking across the other side, you know, the hereditary piercing. Well, of course, on the other side of the chamber, you have all these people who are taller than us, much more handsome, better looking. You know, these are the hereditary peers, you see. They always say politics is show business for ugly people, but I'm not fitting you in that category. I mean, some of the best debaters in the House of Commons, and certainly in the House of Lords, uh, have a strong um, theatrical process because actually what has happened now in Parliament, which is very sad, people read their speeches. So you see people with their head down on a piece of paper, they come determined to give the speech they've written, not recognising the speech has already been read by two other people you know, from different benches, and actually what they need to do is be listening and responding in a different way. I think the people who are successful to some extent in actually changing legislation and making the government rethink are those who may make mistakes while they're speaking, but speak extempore. And we have some fantastic speakers in the House of Lords, and I look at them as wonderful models. I wish I could emulate them. I mean, Igor Judge, who's on the crossbenches, is the leader of the crossbenches. I mean, he gave a speech on the British Constitution at the time when the Prime Minister was creating havoc last autumn, and he spoke for three minutes, and you thought, wow. I sat there open-mouthed thinking, what a privilege to be in that chamber listening to this speech. What about science, though? Is that well represented no. there? And, and are you very much a lone voice, or are you in good it company? Was, it was better. You know, when I chaired the Select Committee for Science and Technology, which was a long time ago, that first time, there were a couple of Nobel Prize winners on the table. Were, you know, every, everybody around the table was a fellow of at least one of the academies, of which there were three. There were one or two lay people, but very few, and the lay people had been in business doing big industrial things. So I remember very well first chairing the report on nuclear waste, and I was terrified because I knew that this was going to be a big issue. Half of us wanted to bury nuclear waste, and I was suddenly taking this committee over because I was the new chairman. And I, the more I thought about it, the more I was concerned that I was they were, they were going to vote. And that's fatal. You don't vote on these sorts of issues if you're going to have any influence. 
Why not? Is that because you, you're voting on something you don't know enough about? On a committee, you just don't divide the committee. You want to present a unanimous report, and if you can't get complete agreement, ignore that part of the report completely. Just find other ways of fudging the issue slightly to make sure that you get the right impact for the key issues you all agree must go through. And it was clear that we weren't certain as a committee. The guy who'd uh, produced this um, report, who was the chairman of the subcommittee, uh, was Lord Toombs, and as we got into, and I thought, how am I going to, this is a taught situation. So I said, well, what we have to talk about this morning, uh, I think really, my lords, is is, um, what we do about burying nuclear waste. And it's very fortunate we have Lord Toombs, of course, who's going to be leading on this, and I wonder if I could just pass over to him. And, of course, there was a roar of laughter. And so, in fact, we got a report out, which was, which in fact went through. And that's still, you know, there are problems, of course, with nuclear waste, and we still have issues. But it certainly left us with some kind of nuclear industry. <laughs> so. When we met this morning, you showed us the vellum where Oliver Cromwell yeah. had signed the death warrant for King Charles the First, and you said he he craftily put himself well down the list so that he he didn't have the spotlight shone on him as the main signatory. It sounds like you were taking a leaf out of his book, or vellum, even. Well, I, I was really pretty intimidated by that committee when I sort of took over as chairman. I thought, well, I'm probably the least qualified, certainly the youngest member, and really, what am I doing here? You know, the, all these guys, you know, have done so much, and... It's wise to remember in the House of Lords particularly that whenever you're speaking, whenever you're speaking, whoever you are, there's always somebody in the chamber who'll know more than you do. And, you know, we had some really good people that the government... You know, we had people like Bob May, who'd been chairman of... You know, who'd been the president of the Royal Society and people of that kind. And, of course, we still have Lord Rees, but we don't have many people of that calibre in the House of Lords now. And do you think that's making a difference? Well, of course, they, the appointments is made are made politically and they're made for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the, the way appointments... One of the big problems of the Lords is, actually, if you're going to have an unelected chamber, you've got to make certain you are appointing people who are going to do what is needed. And if you are expecting an expert chamber to give expert advice, you need to have experts, whether you like experts giving you stuff you want to hear or not. Are you saying this? I mean, are you making a noise about this? Because it, it strikes me that we've just come off the back of a pandemic. We've got really important things going through on the international stage, AI, other sorts of intelligence and machine learning. We've got things like advanced genetics and embryo manipulation we've touched on that but also three parent embryos and so on which is now going into clinical practice there are really very important lifelong impacting decisions being made at the moment it strikes me as quite frankly daft that we don't have a stronger scientific representation in the decision makers well i think you're right but i think that also of course to in my just in my own defense i would say at least the legislation we've got on embryo research and and, and, the, and all that stuff, we've had really good debates, and I think actually we got together very good legislation. I wasn't the only person involved in doing that. I mean, one of the people who I work with very much in tandem from a different part of the house is Niran Patel. And so uh, Lord Patel and I certainly you know, were giving... We didn't rehearse our speeches together, but we knew really where we were coming from. Is and the theatre coming in again? Well, you could say that, but actually I think... It was very persuasive. And, you know, you're dealing with fairly intelligent people who could understand a, an ethical issue. And I think, actually, that works. But you do need to have a few people who had ethical judgment. By that time, of course, Baroness Warnock was really already quite elderly and really probably not really any longer. 
um, as active in those sorts of debates as she might have been. And we needed new people. But, of course, we've not been replacing those people. And I think that's a problem. So if you look around the chamber now, there aren't many fellows of the Royal Academy of Engineering or, or the Royal Society or the Medical Academy of Medical Sciences. And, of course, you know, for all the disadvantages of having people who are obviously, no doubt, with certain blinkered aspects to their career... Uh, those are really important voices. And that's only just one example. There are so many people I could think of who would be better in the House of Lords than I am. And I think, you know, it's very easy to forget that. You know, there are all sorts of people who could be appointed, and it's a lottery. And, um, you know, to be fair, you have to to be of any use there. here. You have to give up quite a lot of time. You know, it's not... You can't just walk in, give a speech, and walk out again. If you're going to really influence the chamber, you've got to be present a lot of the time and get the feeling of how the House is likely to re- react. And that is, it means, might be sitting in the bar or, you know, wherever, but you get the feeling about actually how this is best presented. And unfortunately, you know, in the Commons, we're never going to get that because it's, it's, it's divided by a ridiculous thing called politics. And we've seen how destructive politics are this year, the last two years, three years. I mean, where we've had crazy political decisions which have been simply a way of somebody promoting a particular pet subject or some interest that they've had. Would, for instance, not being able to decide what sex is fit into that? People seem to struggle to define what a man or a woman is and what you can do to yourself to have a sex change and whether or not that means you have a different sex or not. It's a daft debate, isn't it? I mean, the problem, of course, I know I'm going to antagonise a lot of people, but it's biologically obvious that you can't actually change your sex. You can change your gender, but you can't change your sex. So I don't have a problem with that. I don't mind people being transgender. Of course, there are some wonderful people who are promoting transgender issues, but there's a risk, of course, of doing it in a way which might be damaging. And, of course, in my own clinic, I found very early on that I saw a lot of people who'd had transgender reassignment and who felt deeply damaged by the process that they had acceded to at the time, thinking that this is what they wanted to be and now realising that they actually were bereft and actually really depressed. Now, of course, they might have been in any way. There's no controlled trials. But what I think we need to be thinking about is what is the scientific basis behind that desire? What is the scientific basis behind the request? Not to be in any way pejorative or um, trying to be prejudiced. It's to try and find out actually why this is happening, what we can do to make the best use of what is needed and to help people and to encourage them to carry on or not. But, I mean, to offer you know, things which are going to damage their puberty hormones which you know we were using IVF before they were and we know how dangerous those hormones are to block puberty when somebody hasn't really got that degree of competence really they may have the wonderful energy to want to change but the competence to really understand what really might be going on and not to have proper advice and I think what we've seen recently which has been quite controversial of course it's been whipped up because it's a bit like that Daily Mail thing, isn't it? You know, the fact is that the newspapers make a profit and they may only make a profit just, and they only make a profit just because actually they are controversial. And as soon as you don't have controversial articles, 
And you see it right through our daily newspapers. Now, in fact, the news is changing increasingly, unfortunately. We're becoming less ready to read. Very deep and um, intense conversation. What do you do to unwind at the end of a tough day, though? I'm doing a huge amount of music at the moment. So the Wigmore Hall is a great place to be. And the more I go to the Wigmore Hall again, I, didn't, I stopped doing it for a long time, the more impressed I am with the sort of quality of music we have in London. So I put music very high on my order. And it seems to me it's a shocking thing in this country that we have not supported music in primary school in the way we should do because we're not sufficiently educated in a whole range of things. Music is one very good example, which I think is a hugely civilising influence. And so, yeah, I mean, just being able to see these great people on stage and thank them by applauding them afterwards is, is, is very special. Thanks very much to Robert Winston there. Titans of Science returns next week for the last instalment in this run. And it's our former UK Chief Scientific Advisor for the Department of Health, Dame Sally Davies, who'll be with us. Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.